Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Hey, church. I'm Katie. My pronouns are she, her. I'm the lead evangelist here at Galileo Church, and I'm really glad to see y'all and to imagine y'all. I'm just glad we're here together tonight for the second Sunday in our worship series called Tell It Slant. We're looking at the parables Jesus told from the middle of Luke's gospel and um, thinking about how parables are stories of absurdity and humor, how they are meant to show us something true about God's way in this world, something that we might not be ready to see and that we might need the help of a good joke to pay attention to. I've preached this text a couple times at Galileo Church, once in 2016, again in 2019, and though circumstances change in the context around us, the retelling of the parable does not change much. And so I'm picking up some paragraphs of sermons I've given before. I don't see many of you here who will remember that, but I feel like it's a piece of my own integrity to say that up front for Missy. I know you're listening. (laughs) Lance says, me too. Ken and Nathan say, me too. All right, all right. Luke 16, verses 1 through 15. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to the rich man that this manager was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Well, the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking this position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that in, in when, I, when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? And he answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to that one, take your bill, make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches. And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and 
wealth. The VRPs, the very religious persons who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they ridiculed him. So he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In which I will compromise my feminist values by using a profane sexist slur to make a theological point more memorable. Our protagonist calls his boss master. So what, is he an enslaved person? Maybe at some point in his past, but now having proven himself useful and I guess good with numbers, he's been promoted up the ladder in the rich man's household. So far up the ladder, in fact, that he's actually entrusted with the rich guy's money. He can sign checks for his boss. He takes the deposits to the bank. He's got the key to the cash register and the combination to the safe. And when he messes up, he gets fired. He doesn't get sold or killed, things a slave owner could do to an enslaved person who cheated him if he wanted to. So our guy is some other class of worker, more like an employee, a trusted employee with lots of power due to that trust. And he may or may not have been deserving of all that trust. There has been an accusation of embezzling, though we don't know if it's true. But the rich man fires our guy anyway, giving him two weeks notice and telling him to get things in order for the next guy who will have his job. Upon receiving his pink slip, the first thing our guy does is a brutal self-assessment. What will he do now that he has lost his cushy job? Well, a quick scan of his physiology and psyche render an unflattering appraisal, too weak to dig, too proud to beg. Luke 16, three, what will I do now that my master is taking this position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. Now listen, I'm not really big on scripture embroidered on pillows, but if I ever have a scripture embroidered on a pillow, it will be this one, too weak to dig, too proud to beg. So after owning up to what he knows he cannot do, our guy takes a different kind of inventory, an inventory this time of his advantages. He still got the ledger. So he starts playing fast and loose with his boss's accounts receivable. He goes through the boss's client's invoices and writes down debts for as many of them as he can reach, as low as 50 cents on the dollar in some cases. He's not making any money on this deal. There's no embezzling, there's no pocketing of the difference because money, he knows, will go away. Instead, he's making friends. This way, he reasons, these people will have to like me, or at least they will owe me one when I am unemployed in a couple of weeks. They'll have to take me in, and that's how I'm gonna survive this personal economic catastrophe. Can't you just see Jesus hamming it up while he tells this story? He's play-acting the manager. He runs from person to person in this little crowd that is gathered. He licks the nib of his pretend pen, crossing out numbers in an imaginary account book. He shakes hands with a wink and a nod as he makes each of the fictional rich man's fictional creditors very, very happy. And then comes 
the final act, the laughter is suspended, the ledger closes, the pen goes back behind his ear, and our guy is back in the office with his soon-to-be ex-boss. He's been caught out. The boss knows what he's been doing with his last two weeks on the job, how he has cheated the boss out of Boku bucks with just a few strokes of his pen. And Jesus delivers the verdict, but it turns out it's more of a punchline. The rich guy, rather than assigning his goons to load the manager down with cinder blocks and dump him in the river, rather than calling the FBI or the SEC to report his white-collar crime, this boss claps him on the back in congratulation, expressing his admiration for the manager's shrewdness. Luke 16, 8, his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. What a great word, shrewd. Just say it, just say it. shrewd, shrewd. It's onomatopoeic, you know? It's so descriptive of a kind of intelligence that looks for leverage and exploits it to one's own advantage. Atta boy, the rich guy says to our guy, you really showed me. Now you get out of here, you big lug, and if I catch you lurking around here anymore, I'm gonna break your fingers. Nah, just kidding, go on now, but watch your back. No, I'm just joshing you. We're fine. It's all good. Probably. Huh? Get out of here. I love it when Jesus does the slow clap. Now, now Jesus has everybody's full attention because this is a great story. And he can finally make the point that he's been waiting to make all through this long-form joke. It comes in the form of a post-joke commentary, starting in verse 8. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. He's going to keep going like that for a few verses. He's going to mention that dishonest wealth a couple more times. Enough to make you start to wonder, does Jesus imagine that all of his followers are on the take? Or is it just that Jesus understands, as I am learning to, that all wealth is, in some sense, dishonest? Like, like the folks complaining about student loan forgiveness. They signed for those loans. They should have understood their obligation. While at the same exact time enjoying corporate tax breaks that mean the biggest profit makers in our economy are taxed at a far lower rate than ordinary workers. Advocating for government bailouts of ginormous banks that have been be deemed too big to fail. Jumping on pandemic season business loans that were forgiven written off as grants, kajillions of dollars worth to the very politicians who yelled about personal responsibility and the welfare state when it came to someone else's college debt. <laughs> or how about this, dishonest wealth? A church that believes steadfastly in the separation of church and state whose co-conspirators cringed at the addition of religious organizations to the list of employers who qualified for those PPP loans a couple years ago. But once that was the law, applied for one, 
and happily cashed that U.S. government check, we would have voted against our eligibility for that money had they asked. And when it was offered, we could have turned it down. We did not. How about this, dishonest wealth? My own squeamishness about passing, the, passing those mostly symbolic baskets at the end of each service, because nobody needs a basket for Venmo, but we need the baskets. So I can ask again for financial gifts to support the missional priorities of Galileo Church. But the reality is, on some level, I'm actually asking people to pay my salary and benefits for another season. I know you know. Or how about this? We remember that one time that Galileo Church got a big-ass gift from somebody's sale of stock, and we kind of wanted to ask what kind of stock it was they sold, because maybe it was a tobacco company or a big oil company or a clubbing baby seals company, and if it was, would we really want that money? We did want that money. We did not ask where it came from. Or how about this? We could all confess that we take paychecks from clients and bosses that we don't respect. We receive big tips from customers who are drunk. People passing money to us who got their money from God knows where, and we don't ask. And listen, even if you could work for a company whose business ethics you completely respect and do only work that completely matches your own moral sensibilities, the people who write your check would still be taking money from people whose morals you cannot assess, some of whom, no doubt, work for Big Oil or Big Pharma or We Melt Icebergs Incorporated. What I'm saying is, maybe Jesus knew from the jump that all wealth is dishonest wealth. I mean, can you think of any that isn't? Maybe he understood that money itself is corrupt, that an economic system that builds in inequality, that rewards some people for being stronger or healthier or smarter than other people, that claims to reward up by one's own bootstraps pulling, but denies the leg up you get just for being white, or denies health care or shelter or even food to those who don't have dollars to exchange for it is not an honest system. Jesus says, I get it. Everybody works for somebody. Dishonest wealth is a fact of life every single day. So how about this, followers of mine? Be shrewd about it. Get control of it. Make money your bitch. Which, no, that's totally inappropriate. Thoroughly sexist. Feminist Jesus would never say that. But he is also, for once, not saying, lay down your life, or turn the other cheek, or just hang on tight till God comes to rescue you from the bad situation you were born into. This time, he's actually inviting us, finally, to apply a little muscle to the situation and make something happen. Here is a story in Jesus' mouth wherein some privilege is acknowledged, and we are instructed by our Lord and Savior to use it to exploit it like a wedge, to pry open the possibility that we are meant to make things happen in this world, meant to be effective, to exercise some power where we can. Jesus issues a challenge in verses 11 and 12. If then you've not been faithful with a dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? I think that we're meant to hear this parable on at least a couple of levels. The first is really literal. 
about the dollars in our paychecks, in our bank accounts. We've all got some. We all share the stress of knowing that it's not enough, because no matter how much you get, I promise you, it never feels like enough. And Jesus is saying, on this most literal level, that his people, however much of it they've got, have got to get on top of that. Because money, even the dishonest kind, is a useful tool. It can do work. It can do good kingdom of God work if we are the boss of it. It is a true fact that money wants to be the boss of you. It wants to be worked for and worried over and obsessed about. It wants you to be its bitch. It wants to enslave you, and it will if you let it, Jesus says, and that's a problem because, as the man said, no slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Luke 16, 13. So if you can't serve God in money, you got to figure out how to make money serve you. No matter how much or how little of it you've got, no matter where it came from, that's what the dishonest manager did, writing down his master's debts so that people would remember him with kindness when he needed their help. We might say that he used his dishonest wealth to build a community for himself. Money in support of community building? That sounds like something we might do, yeah? It might be a little much to make this parable prescriptive about exactly what you ought to do with your money. Jesus was notoriously terrible with money, but at least this. For Jesus, money and how you relate to it is a spiritual issue. Getting control over your finances so that you can use it for building community or for any other good thing that the spirit of the living Christ would want you to do is part of your discipleship of Jesus. Jesus had an interest in helping people get this right. So the church has an interest in helping people get this right. And I'm not just saying that so you'll give enough money to Galileo Church to keep paying my salary. Probably. On another level, Jesus extolling the little acknowledged Christian virtue of shrewdness has added a new dimension to my thinking on a whole nother reality. Here now a parable, or maybe it's more of a case study. There was once a beautiful church that made safe, brave space for LGBTQ plus folks in Jesus' name. When a nearby school district suspended a beloved and venerated teacher for telling kids that she was getting gay married in the spring, the church realized its responsibility to extend safe, brave space into the world God still loves. The church investigated how, through approved processes, to make their request known, to have their voice heard. They formed a coalition of parents and students, therapists and pastors, taxpayers and teachers. They attended school board meetings each and every month, waiting patiently through the color guard ceremonies, the good citizenship awards, the self-congratulatory reports about the district's great successes in producing graduates who would make measurable contributions to the economy. They waited each and every month for the public comments section of the meetings. 
And when it was their turn to speak, they adhered to the three-minute time limit. They offered statistics and stories asking for the same thing again and again and again. Six words, two commas. The addition of sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression to be added to district policies that protect staff and students from harassment, discrimination, and bullying. For three years, including a year of pandemic shutdown, the coalition continued to play by the rules, even when the district changed the rules, making it harder for us to speak our truth, to repeat our simple request. And we pivoted. We made it work. Additionally, we urged voters to vote in every little race, right down to local school board elections. Voting, we were sure, was the right way, the good citizen way to get the justice we hungered and thirsted for. Here is what we did not know then, that we know now. At the very same time that we were patiently waiting our turn at school board meetings. At the very same time, we were urging everyone to cast a ballot in every election. PAC money from outside the state was flowing like a river into local school board races in support of candidates who only had to pledge to erase LGBTQ plus staff and students from our schools. Hundreds of thousands of dollars flowed into specific districts in Tarrant County, targeted by bigots for takeover, targeted as places where the erasure of queerness and the criminalization of blackness could take root and flourish and spread for previously independent school districts in our county right here. Grapevine Colleyville, where district policy just enacted now dictates how teachers can and cannot discuss race and gender in the classroom, where trans and non-binary students are not allowed the bathrooms or the pronouns that match their identity. Keller, where dozens of books have been pulled from school library shelves in the last six weeks, including LGBTQ plus themed books, and Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl. Carroll ISD in Southlake, where red, white, and blue In God We Trust posters have been donated and received by the school board and now must be prominently displayed according to Texas law, and where the same school board refused the gift of rainbow-colored posters and Arabic language posters with the same exact words. Mansfield ISD where a quirky, queer little church organized and labored for three years for six words and two commas, basic protections for all God's beloveds, having no idea that far bigger forces were already at work, not politely waiting their turn to be transparent and vulnerable during public comments, not earnestly registering voters and publicizing elections in hopes of increasing turnout, not hungry and thirsty for justice, but craven for power in support of their prejudice. Y'all, now we know we were never going to win that fight. 
And it's a microcosm of US American politics right now and proof that some of us have not yet been shrewd enough to get God more of what God wants. I think Jesus appreciated our efforts, but now I also think he was shaking his head a little bit at our naivete. The children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light, he famously said. Even if Luke was the only gospeler ballsy enough to write it down. I don't have a good conclusion here. This way of thinking is mid-process for me, and mostly I'm just mad as hell. And more than a little embarrassed at my own lack of shrewdness. Church, I think we're just going to have to sing our way out of this one for now. Let's give it a try. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.